to Into the West, the Middle Earth SPG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the young captain of Gondor, Faramir. And in our open discussion today, we will be discussing our favorite and least favorite match play scenarios. For our trivia section... Ian will be reading over the submissions from last week's question. Okay, so the question from last week was, in any edition, what model can move the farthest in one turn with any modifiers? So if they were like, had magic cast on them, if they did any kind of like heroic combats or anything like that. And then we're going to read out the answers here. So (laughs) the one that we came up with on the podcast is... uh, one from way back, it's a little old. We're looking in the first edition. And back then, Gwahir had a move of 24 inches. So our answer was just Gwahir moves 24 inches into contact with an enemy model, calls a real combat, and moves another 24 inches <laughs> for a total of 48, which we thought was unbeatable. But maybe we have been proven wrong. We'll see in a couple there, there wasn't a lot of modifiers back then. There wasn't any heroic march or brutal power attacks, so it was pretty straightforward. Just a 24-inch move and then heroic combat. Yeah, maybe... Well, yeah, no, Compel wasn't even around back then, right? We talked about that. Okay. It was, but if Guahir was compelled, he wouldn't have been able to hero combat. Yeah, I don't think... Yeah, there wouldn't really be any other way, yeah. We have a couple other submissions that were pretty good that I want to give a little shout out to. So the first one is uh, from the North of the Shire podcast from Don Barnett from uh, the Ontario group. So their answer is starts with the Ringwraith on a fell beast. So he moves 17 inches as part of a heroic march. After that, he gets whipped by the Balrog special attack and dragged eight inches. But here is like the cool part of this because the Balrog's base he says the base is blocked at the front, so there's not enough space for the uh, the ringwraith, so it has to be put into the back of the base because that's how the Balrog special uh, rule works. So he's whipping 8 inches plus the width of the Balrog's base for an extra 6.29 inches. After that, the ringwraith calls a heroic combat and kills the Balrog, so I'm thinking probably the Witch King with the Morgul Blade because then he could feasibly kill the Balrog and moves another 12 inches. So that brings his total to 43.29 inches. <laughs> which is pretty cool. Gets not quite up to ours, but that's pretty good. The whip bringing the fell beast to the back of the base, that's another six inches. Are they measuring it kind of like swerving around the Balrog's base rather than over the Balrog's head? I think it might be because it, it includes the width of the fell beast base as well, right? I see. Okay. Because it'd be the, the fell beast, like the back of the fell beast. Yeah, so it'd be the width of both the bases basically. It's effectively moving kind of. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. If they remembered the Watcher in the Water, who has a similar rule to the Balrog, if the Fell Beast was dragged by the Watcher to the back of the Watcher's base, that's another, like, 10, 12 inches, and then they, <laughs> their answer could have beaten our answer. Yeah, which is, like, absolutely insane. <laughs> Can you imagine you get dragged by the Balrog and then you get dragged again? <laughs> <laughs> but really like that one. I never thought about dragging to other sides of bases. That one was really cool. I really like that answer. The next one that we have, and then our winner, actually is uh, from Marcus Hammond. So he's from the um, the Duran Show podcast. So again, it starts off with a ringwraith mounted on a fell beast. And he has he is participating in a heroic march and also has a drum nearby. So that would add an extra 10 inches to his movement. So it would have to be Kamul, right, to benefit from the drum? 
Yeah, I think it would have to be Kamul. Yeah, like you're saying, Charles, because of the keywords and also because he has to end within six inches of the model calling it the heroic march. I think like just a captain that was mounted, you can make it work so they'd still stay within the radiuses. So after that, Kamul would have Aldemar and Madrigal cast on him by Wood Elf Sentinel. So that pulls them forward another 12 inches. He's then sorcerous blasted by somebody. And we'll say you roll the six. So that max distance. So that adds six inches. So now Kamul is on foot. <laughs> he is then charged by Treebeard, who calls a heroic strength, wins the fight, and hurls Kamul for another nine inches. And after that, he is heroic combated into from another model and then barged away another three inches. So that brings it to a total of 52 inches, which is absolutely insane. That's like farther than the length of a table. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> now the Sentinels, Eldemar Madrigal, would it only move him 12 inches or would it move the buffed amount? Ooh, I think... It says full movement or something. For the Fowlighter or Eldemar Madrigal, it, it does the boosted movement value. Well, either case, Marcus is the winner. But yeah, in, in, in any case, that's insane. I mean, that's how you win uh, recon right there, right? You just get a model <laughs> off in the first turn <laughs> with your opponent helping you. <laughs> Madness. Okay, so yeah, congratulations, Marcus. That's a ridiculous answer, and I love it. <laughs> As for this week, we're going to have a little bit more of an easier question. So this one is, which character now in the current edition has the most number of profiles? So obviously you could look that up. I'm going to encourage people not to and try and have a really good think about this, see if they can get the right answer. Yeah, so just say it again. Which character in the game has the most number of profiles? So you guys are going to have until December 6th to submit your answers. And the email you guys can send your answers into is intothewest90 at gmail.com. And that should be posted up on the Facebook posts if you guys need to see that. All right, let's kick off this episode with Faramir, Captain of Gondor. This is the old sewer. Runs right under the river through to the edge of the city. You'll find cover in the woods there. Captain Faramir, you've shown your quality, sir. Now, Faramir, Captain of Gondor, is a hero of valor from the Minas Tirith list. He's 80 points base. Uh, move 6, fight 5 with 3 plus shoot. Strength 4, defense 5. Two attacks, two wounds, courage six, three might, three will, two fate. He has like a, you know, your basic man, captain level mid mid tier uh, stat line. He comes with armor and sword. He can get an armored horse for 15 points, horse for 10 points, bow for five points, heavy armor for five points, lance for five points, and shield for five points. His heroic actions are heroic resolve, heroic accuracy, heroic strike, and heroic defense. He has two special rules, the first being Woodland Creature, so being able to move his full movement in the woods while on foot. And is there a captain here who still has the courage to do his Lord's Will, which uh, essentially means Faramir can pass all courage tests while Denethor is alive and on the battlefield. However, while Denethor is on the battlefield, Faramir has to charge an enemy model if he is able to. I think you kind of summed it up kind of underwhelming and i mean first points cost is a little like eh and i think there's there's also like two ways you usually see people running him which is like all mounted up with the heavy armor and the lance and the shield and he comes to 110 points when you do that 
And that's really expensive for a fight five to attack model. So it's not great. I mean, the other way you would run him is with like in his like ranger garb. But even then, I think now when you would run him like that is in the Legion, like the Farmers Rangers. And even then, I usually see people putting him on the horse anyway. So I think definitely the best way to run him is probably all mounted up, but it's not amazing. He is, I guess, the cheapest hero of Valor in Ministerius. So if you want to do, like, yellow alliances, he's kind of who you go for. I don't know. A little weird. Well, I think well, I think Denethor is hero of Valor, so he would be the cheapest besides Denethor, right? Well, so isn't, brought a, up a, isn't her in the hero of Valor? Yeah, so I was just yeah. going to bring that up. Um, they're the same points, and I think they get compared a lot. I think that's a that's a pretty good discussion to have which one you would rather take personally i like with Heron just because his special rule he's like he's really good but he is still weak so you get the best value out of him when you make his like line of command special rule when you use that so i wouldn't consider him like allying outside of like like if you didn't have another hero here where he wouldn't be the leader or you could apply to so like faramir or boromir or like one of the fiefdom heroes you can still apply it to so if you don't have that, then I would jump to Faramir. I think he's he's okay. Like like Ian's already said, he's a little bit underwhelming for his points. He obviously he does have heroic strike and heroic defense. That's two of the three real major special heroic actions. So I like that. I like being able to obviously kit him out with the horse, the lance, the heavy armor, the shield. Makes him defense seven, bit tough to wound, plus one to wound mobile but still ultimately a little bit too much for what you're getting he does have a little bit of magic resilience too he does have heroic resolve three will points which is solid two fate but beyond that he's still ultimately just kind of a named captain model because you can still take a gondor captain and get the you get access to march instead you obviously don't get striker defense but you also still get the armor the horse the lance plus one to wound hitting power tend to say he's also a little bit a little bit much for what he brings to the table i think uh you guys are a bit down on him i mean i know it doesn't seem like he's the most amazing hero but i think he does have his uses and especially as a hero of valor in this day and age if you want to run a convenient ally list with Minas Tirith, i think he's a really good option again compared to her in He's a lot tankier. Um, he's got the two wounds, two fate, and he can go up to defense seven, and he has heroic defense. I do like him. He is similar to a captain where you can mount on a horse, get a lance to get that killing power, but he's also a fight five. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree there. I think Ian and Alex are a little bit harsh on this one. I actually think he's really versatile with his options. I think he's the biggest mid-tier mounted hero. And he can get that armored horse, which I believe in that list only him and Elisar can take armored horse, because you're not going to be able to take a king of men. He has really good heroic actions, and really his negative special rule only comes in play when you take Denethor, and you probably won't take Denethor with him because it's such a big downside. I think if we're playing low points, like under 500 points, he might be my leader of choice if I was taking like a pure ministerial army because of the three will, the two fate, and going up to defense seven. He's pretty tanky for what you pay for. So, yeah, if we're going to go and start going with the ratings, I'd probably give him an, probably give him an 8. Uh, okay, so I, I still think he definitely has, like, a place in the list for sure. 
I just, I don't know. I still get a little underwhelmed by him. Maybe I need to use him more. One thing I don't think we did touch on is his Courage 6 is actually, like, really good for considering how low his points is, like Charles was uh, saying. He'd be good at low points with that. And then the other thing is he goes up to Courage 7 with the army bonus and 3 will. Like, he, he should not be running away. So that's pretty handy. And he does have some really good, like, heroic abilities and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty good all-around profile, I guess. Just seems a little on the expensive side for me. But anyway, I'll probably put him at about a 7, I think. Like, he's definitely useful in the list, but, you know, there's there's other stuff you can tank. But he does have a role, and he fills it well. I think um, I'll also go with the 7 here. I, I do like him, but it's just uh, there's there's just so many options in the Minas Tirith list with named heroes. Minas Tirith is just like the good side version of Mordor, so just too many options, too many good options. Three minutes ago, I, I stated an opinion. I would like to defect from that opinion. Um, <laughs> Fucking classic. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, oh, do, I one thing that I do agree with, I think I thought about mentioning is, yeah, he's pretty decent. He's a bit buried beneath some other pretty high tier heroes in the list. Is very much like a hero in Mordor that's buried beneath a wealth of very strong options. He obviously has two of the three very important heroic actions. I didn't even notice the Courage. Courage 6 is very strong. And obviously, as Richard mentioned, Hero of Valor being able to ally that in is quite useful. I just also believe that most of the time, first you're going to pick Boromir or you're going to pick Alassar. Ultimately, I think I'm actually going to have to give Faramir probably about seven and a half eight he has his uses and they are more than denethor gives him credit for i remember when the new edition came out i was flipping through all the profiles see what's changed oh everyone has so many like cool special rules everyone has like something new to their profile i go to faramir i see a new special rule i get really excited and i read it and it's it's one that forces him to charge and it makes him go crazy when his dad is in the same army maybe that's what gets a lot of people underwhelmed when they read it they expect a cool little trick and then they get the opposite but the profile the stat line itself is really solid yeah that that is a good point charles it's kind of like theodred's special rule but it just you don't really get any benefit (laughs) and it's not like he's going to be failing any courage tests anyway with his courage six right so it's like i don't know it's it it feels like a, a nice theme but it doesn't feel like doesn't feel quite right yeah all right, so next we're going to move on to the army lists we have prepared for today, each of them including Faramir. To start, I'll be sharing my 400-point Rangers of Athelion Legendary Legion list. So in this Legendary Legion, for those who don't know, it's the ambush from the two towers where the Rangers ambush the Haradrim in Athelion. So the leader is Faramir with horse. In his warband are five Rangers of Gondor. Two warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, one warrior of Minas Tirith with spear and shield, and two rangers of Gondor with spear. Second warband is Madril with seven rangers of Gondor and four rangers of Gondor with spear. And third warband is Damrod with four rangers of Gondor and two rangers of Gondor with spear. So that comes out to 400 points, 30 models, 26 shots, and seven might. So this legendary legion. I think everyone who plays the game competitively knows that it's very strong at low points. And the reason for that is because of the rule 
basically your rangers of Gondor do not count towards your bow limit when they're within the warbands of the three heroes, Faramir, Madril, and Damrod. And at such low points, you can essentially take all your entire army with bows if you wanted to, since you won't be able to fill up all the warbands at 400 points anyway. The reason why I didn't take all bows, I took some warriors in there as well, was just for a little bit more higher defense. But the strategy behind this list is to, as you can tell, just shoot out my enemy and try to pick off all the big threats that you might see at 400 points until the enemy gets close and then try to use my decent to high numbers at 400 points to kind of surround the enemy and try to finish them off. Faramir being the biggest hero and the only model with heroic strike, he will take on the enemy leader or any threat that requires a heroic strike, such as an enemy monster. Thoughts on this list? Do you know that meme where it's just a dog and it's just like the caption on is basically just happiness noises? That's me whenever I read this list. So many bows. It's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. I love it. It's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think you covered it pretty well. Like there's like you have almost 30 bows, like 26 bows at 400 points. That's that's disgusting. That's horrendous. I don't want to fight that. Nobody wants to fight that. Yeah, like you got a decent amount of might too. Seven might is really good. It's gross. It's gross. I mean, it'd be nice if you could have some more cav, but I think you do have farm you're mounted, right? Yeah, so that's good. And I mean, it'd be nice if you could get a banner in there, but I don't know if you want to drop the three rangers to do it. Uh, actually, maybe that's like the only criticism I would have is like, I don't think it's going to hurt you that much to lose three shots, but I think the banner in there will really help you in combat. Yeah, because you are pretty squishy once combat happens. So if the enemy can get to you quickly, you guys are going to start dying pretty fast. But, I mean, yeah, this is gross in all the best ways. Okay, so I was trying to get in before Ian said bows 13 times in 60 seconds, but I'll just... Bows. I'll just have to say that I completely agree with Ian on this one. This is going to honesty bows and then surpassing it by 10 kilometers. This is so many bows at 400 points that no one should want to have to play against this list. At 400 points, most armies purely just do not have the models to keep up with that kind of range fire. It just doesn't happen. Now, of course, once they get into combat, the rangers are a little bit more on the squishy side. I have to agree with Ian, a banner would probably be useful. Considering you have 26 bows, I don't see it being an issue to drop three of them in order to get the banner you will need it. Mobility, with difficult terrain, you won't have that problem, but you might have it with the lack of cavalry. Having Faramir mounted, I think, is even in the Rangers of Athelion list, is a bit of a no-brainer. But beyond that, I, I think it could use some more cavalry. But really, just the number of bows in general. Like when I, when I looked at the list, when you sent it to us and it had 26 bows, that automatically at the points value made it to me quite competitive-looking. Obviously, also being able to have all of your ranger heroes in there, I think it's pretty solid. If you did the same list at 800 points, it might not be as great, but at this point's value, I think it's quite good. I really don't have very many criticisms of it all beyond what I've already said. I think it's a very solid, probably, hero of valor. So, I disagree on the banner portion. I get why you might want to take that, but... I think at 30 models at 400 points, that's just that's just a horde army, and that's just ridiculous because you're 
you're taking out the enemy a good chunk of their list from shooting and then when they come in you might even have like close to double their numbers and then you just go for the surround um and you do have a couple spears in there too so you do have spear support so i don't think a banner is necessary i'd rather actually have the numbers and i like madrill in here so you're equipped to deal with maelstrom and then seven might is really good at 400 points as well i i think this is just a list that is built for 600 points and under um you can't really go wrong with it i think at higher points, it doesn't scale as well. And obviously, it still has weaknesses, but it's just definitely a tournament winning list. And I think that's why the general consensus is that this list probably needs some change. So I think easily a hero of legend for this one. So I see that Ian needs a little bit more time to decide his rating for my list. So let me just jump in and kind of explain why I didn't take the banner. So this list, I really struggled to um, balance the number of uh, models I wanted in the list and also the ratio of spear to no spear. So I know it's a defense four army and I wanted to hit a critical number so that when combat hits, I am able to take some losses because I know they're all um, pretty easy to wound and I will be losing a lot of models up close. So I try to include as many spears as I can and I wanted to hit that 30 models so that it, it would take 16 models to break. And um, I just thought that if I had enough spear in there, it would give me extra dice in combat, which is similar to uh, including a banner and losing three models. So I don't know, maybe a personal choice. Uh, Ian, I know you love banners in every army. Play too many high fight armies, my dude. By the way, um, I think I think the list has 27 bows now that I recount it. Uh, Faramir has a bow as well, so 27 shots. Sorry. That's still gross. <laughs> Yeah, he just, I mean, he just added a bow, Ian. I know, I know, it's great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, I like it, at that points value, it's it's like it's ridiculous. Like it has to be legend, but yeah, it's just crazy. Because yeah, even like I know what uh, Alex I think mentioned like it doesn't have a lot of mobility, but you still have Madrill who has March with three might points, and you have so much might anyway at 400. You're not worried to spend two might or three might if you really want to on marches at some point in the game. So it can move if it has to. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And it does scale up, too, like uh, Richard mentioned a bit. Like, once you get up to, like, 600, you can probably throw in, like, Frodo and Sam, and then you have ring shenanigans going on. I don't know if I'd want to take it past 600. You could probably push it to 7, honestly. But, yeah, it's, it is it is a really good Legion. It just doesn't um, become as good once people start taking Blinding Light. It still probably outshoots a lot of blinding light lists, but then you get to that point where your defense four getting into shoot or it's not as uh, straightforward. Yeah, and you won't you won't I also just brush out as many numbers as you want to to get that full like surrounds and traps once combat hits. So yeah, that that's fair. I also just forgot to mention Richard's already mentioned it generally, but for this list, even though it feels like an auto take given the uh, selection of possible heroes for the Legion. But I just love the Madrill pick. I always do. When I was looking over the army list for this week, he's essentially Gondor's Guritz. And I love it. No, no, no. no. Guritz is Mordor's Madrill. We can talk about this later. (laughs) Get it right, Alex. (laughs) I mean, technically you're not wrong because Guritz came into the game later than Madrill. But as a Mordor player, I associate it the other way around. 
but I just love it. The ability to alter reinforcement roles, anything to do with Maelstrom is fantastic. I can definitely see how that would be very useful given the list that you've picked. And I just love that profile. I love it so much. Agreed. All right. So next we have um, Alex's 600 point Pyraminist tier list. Take it away. All right. So uh, for this list, uh, as already said, 600 points, pure Minas Tirith. I have Faramir with a horse, heavy armor, shield, and a lance. So I've got them all combat kitted out for this list. Four warriors of Minas Tirith, shield, three with shield and spear, one with shield, spear, banner, two guards of the fountain court with shields, one ranger of Gondor, two rangers with spear, one knight of Minas Tirith with a shield, Hurin on horse, four warriors with shield, four with shield and spear, guard of the fountain court with shield, two rangers with spear, and a knight with a shield, and a captain of Minas Tirith with a shield, lance, horse, three warriors with shield, three with shield and spear, two rangers with spear, 600 points, 37 models, Break at 19, 8 might, 7 bows. Only honesty bows, hey? My list couldn't afford more bows. So what would your uh, general strategy be, Alex, to play this list? I think I've got a lot of fight force support in there. So it was generally shield wall, push the heroes maybe a little bit more than I should, because I have the two that are mounted with lances get Hurin in there. Obviously Hurin's special rule, being able to deny your opponent victory points for slaying the enemy leader so long as he's still alive, I'd find quite valuable. Through that, throwing uh, Faramir in a little bit more, being able to be a little bit more reckless with Faramir. Wouldn't say a lot of shooting, but obviously the Rangers being a shoot value three, quite valuable just for picking off small supports, trying to push the opponent a little bit having enough movement with a few knights in there, and then the march with the captain to be able to move up to push the issue and essentially use that for some tricky heroic combats and uh, fight phase movement. So I actually really like the list that you built here, Alex, and I assume that Faramir is your leader, so you can uh, utilize the Hurin special rule to... Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so you have a lot of the the normal dudes from Minas Tirith for the shield wall, and I see that you have the guards of the fountain court, the rangers of Gondor being able to support them if needed, which makes it really flexible. And you have the march as well in there. It's just a very well-rounded list, and 37 models at 600 points is really, really solid. And what I like is that arming the captain with the lance as well, you kind of have a spread out hitting power. So you got two mounted heroes with lance and then a mounted hero with a master forge. So that's just ridiculous and going to be really hard to deal with. Um, the only thing that I might change is that I really like Knights of Minas Tirith at 14 points. And I would probably be willing to grab a couple more, especially right now you have an odd number model count at 37. So going down to 36 models wouldn't really hurt your breakpoint. So I would probably try to squeeze in an extra knight there. But otherwise, 
I think this is quite the formidable force at 600. Yeah, I'm. I would definitely give this a legend. I've never received a hero of legend before. I'm so happy. Um, yeah, no. Congratulations! I def- <laughs> Yay! This is the bit where the balloons fall from the top of my screen. Um, <laughs> I I actually did have another knight in the list. Funny enough for you to mention there, Richard. I had that there. I had four knights, and I was like, I really like that number of knights. But then I was really lacking bows. And so I toyed with that little bit. I tried to put more bows in. I took some out. I was also trying to keep the numbers relatively even amongst the shield and spear warriors for the shield wall special rule. I was trying to keep that all evened out so that I could make the most of that special rule. Then trying to balance it with having the rangers for the bows and having the knights. That's where that extra knight actually came out, was trying to make that balance work. Otherwise, I probably would have pushed a ranger out in order to upgrade one of the warriors or drop one of the warriors actually to push one of the rangers up to a knight. But for me, it was really a toss up. Like, that's the one thing I went back and forth on the list with for probably a solid 20 minutes. All right. So I'm a big fan of your um, this list composition. I like how you didn't go for max bows and went for more um, shield wall. Obligatory models. <laughs> Well, he well if he had taken max bows, he would not have such a big uh, defense seven from shield wall. I think you can even drop your fountain core guard for just basic warriors of Minas Tirith because there's such good value for their defense seven. And if you wanted to keep some bodyguard in your list, you can always swap your rangers for citadel guard with longbows, which um, they're slightly tougher too at defense five and. They fill the bodyguard role, if that's what you're looking for. I think most people would not take a Minas Tirith captain in this case, because there are so many three might Minas Tirith small heroes that you could have taken. Maybe some fight five or a heroic strike hero. But I like how you went with a mounted captain choice, because now you have three mounted models, three mounted heroes at 600 points against some less mobile armies or all foot armies. That could be really scary plus one to wound on the charge for a list that lacks hitting power. Typically, that's a really, really strong surprise for uh, for your opponent, potentially. 37 model is also really, really good. I agree with that. So I think it's a hero of legend. I think I can see this list winning a tournament at 600 points. So I was actually, yeah, I, I know we talked up Madrill like immediately before this in the other list, but I honestly, like everybody else has said, I do really like the captain pick in this list because... One of the things Minas Tirith really struggles with normally is wounding. So like everyone has said, um, like the three guys all with plus one to wound is fantastic. And you still get the march in there. So that's awesome. I I don't know. Like, okay, I'm going to tout the bow thing a little bit. Because like, yeah, shoot, who's that? Charles was saying, like, you could swap some of the fountain cord out. You could swap them out for rangers with spears. And then you still get the fight four. And then you get some more bows. But that's just like a personal preference thing. Like. I would probably do that, but I don't think you would need to. That's yeah, it's, it's whatever you want. It, it would make his list softer, though. It would make it easier to break because he would have more defense. Yeah. Too. So you, you lose the yeah. You it does compromise that a little bit, but it does give you more options for playing because like Minas Tirith can win a shooting war easily when they when they have like a whole bunch of rangers. So it's just gives you more tactical options, but it does compromise what you're wanting to do with the list. So I understand if you don't want to. Because you're basically just, yeah, like you said, you're just going to set up shield walls everywhere and then smash stuff with your heroes. 
Yeah, it's good. You got the mobility. You got at least your honesty bows. You got three heroes who can, with plus one to wound, two of strike, banner, 600 points, a lot of models. I like. Yeah. I'm... Now, I, the one thing I always say, and I, I'll mention this just because two of you have mentioned the possibility of dropping models for or the, the Fountain Court Guard for either more rangers, which I actually did toy with. That's another thing that I looked at. I did want to put more bows in. I did notice that I could swap them out and still get the fight for from the rangers. But you guys know how much I love my high defense. Being able to get the shields in there and get uh, defense seven fountain court guard, that's kind of what tipped it for me, as I felt like if I did that, I'd have too much defense four on the list. That's kind of what pushed me, though I, I really do think that was a bit of a coin toss in the end. Yeah, that's fair enough. I thought you had more than three. Nah, I would keep the three of them. Because you, you do want some things that are guaranteed to pass, even though you do have the plus one courage from the army bonus. Having a few models that are guaranteed to pass is just always handy when you have to tag that monster or something like that. So, yeah, no, it's it's a good balance. Yeah, I guess I have to go Legend. That's crazy. Just, oh my god. <laughs> that's what a, happens that's a clean happens. sweep, Alex. I think Alex is primed to win a tournament now. If, if only quarantine is over. <laughs> that's the only thing stopping him. But didn't Charles get his sweep of... Or no, did he get a Valor in there? Yeah, I think I Alex got a did. Valor from Alex. Yeah. Oh, sabotage. Sabotage. <laughs> he wanted to make sure I didn't win today. Um, <laughs> next, we have Ian's 800-point alliance list. Okay, so this is... Like, I cheated a little bit with submitting this list because I basically, like, before we decided on the topic for this week, like, three days before... I was just writing lists, and I was like, ah, I wonder if I can kind of spam out Minas Tirith, but still kind of get a triple threat going. And this was the result, and I was like, oh, perfect, we're choosing Faramir? I'll just take this list. Anyway, so <laughs> my list is Faramir as the leader. He's got the horse, the heavy armor, the shield, and the lance. Sorry, uh, armored horse. Uh, he has four Minas Tirith warriors with shield, three Minas Tirith warriors with spear and shield, one warrior with banner, spear, and shield, and one knight of Minas Tirith with shield. The second warband is Hurin. Three rangers with spear and two knights of Minas Tirith with shield. Third warband is Mandril. Three rangers, three rangers with spear. Fourth warband is Ingold. Three warriors with shield and three warriors with spear and shield. And my last warband is four along the fat on a horse with six axemen of Lossanark, four clansmen of Lamadon, and five Blackroot Vale archers. That comes to 800 points, 46 models, which would be 24 dead to break, 15 might, and 15 bows. So, like I said, I kind of wanted to get the triple threat in here. So, having four long Huron and Faramir all mounted, all with plus one to wound when they charged, that's like a decent amount of hitting power. There are also all fight five, which wouldn't be so great if you're playing against elves, but against everything else, that's fine. Madrill is in there for the reasons that we said before. You know, he's got the march, he's got the reinforcing rule. That's super handy. Ingold, I mean, you, you could probably swap him out for Irlas. Is that his name? The guy we talked about in the other episode? And it would work just as well. Um, yeah, I just wrote last, yes. Because I have Ingold, and I don't think I've used him in a game yet. <laughs> so I kind of want to try this list, so that's why I put him in there. But I also like having the uh, the extra strike, just because Forlong doesn't have it. So having, like, three heroes with strike I think is pretty good when they're all pretty low tier. He also has defense, so he, he should be able, if I want, need him to, he can go into a big hero and just hold them up for a turn or two. And, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of warriors in Ministerius, so having that shield wall ability that he brings to the table is kind of cool, you know, pushing enemies back. I, I don't know how useful it is. I haven't really seen it applied, but I think, I, I want to see how it works, honestly. I think it could be pretty good. 
Forlong in there, I he's, he's just a really good pick, I think, with the list, because he can hit hard. He also brings plus one horn, brings plus one courage to the list. So that means basically all of my warriors of Ministerith and all of my rangers and my knights are jumping from courage three to courage five because of that and the army bonus. And then the four clansmen of Lambadon I have with him jump to courage six. So I, I don't really feel the need to have any um, bodyguard stuff in the list just because I have really good overall courage and decent numbers anyway. Oh yeah, and on that note, Faramir in the list actually jumps to Courage 8, so he's just not going to fail a test unless there's a minus 1 around, in which case he most likely will not fail a test anyway. So that's pretty cool. We've touched on Hiran before, yeah, super handy, so even at 800, it's not the worst to have Faramir as the leader, because you still have that protection from Hiran. Yeah, thoughts? Uh, The numbers are good, it's 46 models, yeah. I like the idea of the triple mounted heroes, kind of like what Alex did. But I think if you want to ally fiefdoms, I think Angbor is the better choice because he would improve your clansmen as well. And you just get a, a bubble of Fearless. And I think Fearless is always slightly better than Warhorn. I also think that you get the strike from Angbor, so then you're not forced to take Ingold. I'm just not a big fan of the Ingold profile. I think there are better mid tier Minas Tirith heroes. Like I think I would prefer to take Uralas over him or even Kyrian. So I think your hero choices, um, I don't necessarily agree with, but it looks like a strong list. It's it's got a pretty uh, healthy number. And I like how you spread out your warbands and just have five, like five decent heroes instead of like a big beat stick. Like you see a lot at 800 points. I'll go, I'll go a hero of valor on this one. I should say the other thing I was toying with when I was writing this up is just like maxing out all their warbands and not having the fifth hero. But then I was like, nah, I want 15 might. <laughs> so that kind of persuaded me. I would say that I generally like the list with like spread out threats. And this definitely has it with these five heroes. And there's a disgustingly amount of might for 800 points. Uh, 46 models is solid, but the only issue that I see is you have 12 D4 models and six D5 models. So you'd actually get to that breakpoint fairly quickly, even with like the shield wall uh, Minas Tirith guys you have. And I think another issue that you might encounter is you do have the clansmen with the broadswords, but everyone or all the warrior models in your army are strength three. And I know that's fairly common with good forces, but you do kind of have a little bit less killing power. And also the issue with not having one big um, beat stick you might have mentioned is that all your heroes are either fight four or fight five. So even with a strike, a lot of the times they'll end up losing the strike and they could be killed in one turn by a big hero at 800 points because you'll actually see a lot of those at that points level. I think it's a really well-rounded list though. So I'm kind of struggling here. It's uh, definitely between like a legend and a valor, but I think I would probably have to say more of a strong valor for me. I'm so okay. Just one thing I want to touch on is I, I would disagree with you a little bit on that, Richard, about the hitting power. Like normally I agree, like Minister does struggle to hit, but just because of the three mounted heroes, the numbers, and like you said, having it's not a lot, but having those clans with the plus one to wound uh, and the knights that also have plus one to wound, I think there is a decent amount. 
and it might actually surprise people who are usually used to facing Mysterious Bliss. That is mostly strength three. And with like the 15 bows, if I want to do some damage before combat, it can be done. So I, I, I think it'll hit harder than like your average Ministerious list, but it's not going to be insane. Well, I'm just going over the lists repeatedly. I'm not too well versed with Ingold. I don't see him too much. Um, you have Ingold and Hurin. Really come to like Hurin lately with the ability that he has to let you be a little bit more reckless with Faramir. I do obviously like the Warriors for the same reason that I like them in the list I put together. Shield Wall makes them quite strong. Got high defense there. Hurin's good. A good number of mounted models, obviously. Very solid number of bows. I really wouldn't expect anything less coming from you on that one. Yeah, again, when you've got 46 models and you've got such a high number of defense 4 and 5, they go down a little bit too quickly, even when you don't expect them to. That's one issue, is it's it's tough to mitigate that a low defense. It, it is a very good list. I like the way it's rounded. The Blackroot Veil Archers, I do like having your threat spread out, because obviously if you have one big threat, it becomes too easy for your opponent to neutralize it, whereas when you have this many, it's quite difficult to keep track of them all and keep them all in check. So I really like that aspect of it. Obviously, having 15 might, you can throw it around like candy on most of your opponents at 800 points. So I find that intriguing. Problem with having so many spread out threats. Forlong on a horse is solid pick. Obviously, he doesn't get heroic strike, and if he comes up against something bigger, he is defense six. He's three wounds, one fate, so he can last a little bit. So I'm going to give it a strong valor. I think it's it's quite good. That being said, I know this is a Farmir episode. The idea did occur to me. What if I swapped like Farmir and Ingold for Imrahil and a whole bunch of guys from the fiefdoms? I feel like that might actually be pretty pretty solid. Yeah, like a fiefdom centered list and then ally and Madrill. Yeah, that's definitely better. <laughs> <laughs> I also just saw. <laughs> I also just saw that you have six axemen that can go two-handed piercing strike. So that's not bad. Uh, With that's, the that's a little. That's a little bit of hitting power. Yeah. 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 I'm also just amazed that like so far we had only Valors and Legends, and, like, the majority Legends so far, and, like, a Minas Tirith kind of centric episode, because that, like, is... I just never would have seen that coming. It speaks to uh, Faramir's versatility and the versatility of the Minas Tirith army list, right? Perhaps I, I can't was... believe you just skipped out... I, I cannot believe you just skipped out on the opportunity to say that that really speaks to Faramir's quality. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, Alex, that's devastating. I love it. <laughs> And the final list of this episode is from Richard. It's a list. I'll let him go through the, his list. It's a 1,000-point list. It sure is a list. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a list. So the rest of the guys I noticed for this week brought Faramir as, like, the leader and, like, kind of the the main piece. I kind of took a different route and brought him as a side piece. And so just to start, my leader is Galadriel, the Lothlorien version, leading three Galadrium warriors with shield, one Galadrium warrior with shield and spear, one Galadrium warrior with shield, spear, banner, six Galadrium warriors with bow, four Galadrium court with pike, and one Galadrium knight with shield. 
And then I have a fiefdoms contingent with Angvor leading six clansmen of Lamadon, six men-at-arms with Pike. And then I have Faramir, fully loaded out horse, heavy armor, lance, shield, leading four warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, four warriors of Minas Tirith with shield and spear, two knights of Minas Tirith with shield, four rangers. And then I have also allying in uh, his brother, Boromir of Gondor, from the Fellowship with horse and shield. And one final ally is Gwaihir from the Misty Mountains. So this comes to 1,000 points, 47 models, 10 bows, and 17 might. So this list is basically, I try to build a well-rounded list um, that can kind of do a bit of everything, a decent model count with 17 might. So I have the combo that I've talked about in the previous episodes with Galadriel and Gwaihir, which threatens a lot of heroes because Gwaihir can just go in with the assassination. I have Angmore leading a group of clansmen that are fearless. And a little cool trick with this is having the clansmen with the broadswords backed up by the men-at-arms pikes. And then the third rank of pikes would be the Gladrum Court Elves, which gives everyone in that block fight six. So it's a good way to go up against the enemy hero. So you're rolling three dice, throwing a banner beside it, and it can outfight most heroes. And then it also has the killing power in the front with the broadsword. And it has a decent amount of shooting. And then Formir of Gondor, he's just one of the most cost-efficient heroes um, with six might. And Galadriel's blinding light kind of mitigates some of his weaknesses. And yeah, it's, it's just a list that can grind. But I also have a bit of mobility in my three cavalry and Gwaihir. Okay, I'm just going to say this. If we had like any doubt this list was going to be filthy... It's gone. Um, <laughs> okay, I, okay. Let, let me defend is... myself first. This was the reason why this is so filthy is because this was actually supposed to be my Adepticon 2020 list before it got canceled. And I did actually bring it to a tournament back in March, a local tournament. So you can hear about that more in the previous episode, episode six, where Trebuchet. We discussed more about it, yeah, <laughs> where I had to fight a trebuchet that was apparently manned by Legolas for some reason. But yeah, go ahead, Alex. <laughs> I mean, just I, I don't have a place to critique this list, essentially, because it has everything it really needs. Obviously, the gap between somewhere between 700, 800, and 1,000 really isn't usually the troop count. It's the heroes. That's what you've got there. Number count is solid. It's not amazing, but it is what it has to be. Having Galadriel for her magical powers with Boromir and Faramir and Gwahir, just it, it's just, I, okay, I don't have words for that. That's amazing. The number of mounted troops you have is great. I love it. At 1,000 points, having that much mobility is very valuable. As you've mentioned, having the spear supports and the pike supports from the elves to grant the higher fight value, especially the Galadrim Court Guard fight six and the pikes is pretty filthy. What you described with that pike block is a pike block that will take down or will at least just stop up most evil heroes in the game. Most good heroes will struggle with it. So I think all round this list is filthy. Like I really don't see 
a place where it gets much better having the fellowship Boromir in there mounted, having Faramir mounted, Gwahir who can just fly 12 inches wherever he wants. Let me see. I'm just I'm going to take one more look at this list because there's got to be something. There's got to be a weakness here somewhere. I got to find it. It's in, you know, you got the banner. Trebuchets. Okay. <laughs> He's yeah, I'm sorry, weaknesses. Richard, I'll stop at some point. The weaknesses, the weaknesses, trebuchets. Aside from that, yeah, no. Only Got, one particular trebuchet, actually. Only the, the one, Gondor trebuchet. The the one that ignores blinding light. No, this is. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, I'm really just struggling to see a weakness. So it's pretty great. It's I'm, I'm giving another a legend at this point. I've got to. Alex had some trouble finding a weakness, and I think the reason is because there isn't really any weaknesses. I think at 1,000 points, it gives you enough room to kind of include all the tools you need to cover any weakness if you wanted to, especially for good side. And some massive might store, the caster, the flying monster, the fight six pike block, and the broadswords, and the fearless. You pretty much have every aspect of a good army that you need, so... Not going to say more. You could listen to our previous episodes if you want to hear more about Boromir or Gwahir. Yeah, Hero of Legend. This is like as close to a perfect list as you can get, I think. I was looking at this list again, like when we were prepping for the episode, and I was like, wow, he's just like, like this, like this has like no weaknesses. He's so many heroes. I don't understand how he could fit this all in. Oh, it's a thousand points, right? That makes so much more sense. Ah, oh, yeah, it's just like you have so much might, too. Like, even at a thousand points, 17 might is crazy. And, like, that kind of, the flexibility that that brings. Like, I've done lists with, like, a lot of might like that. And it's great. Like, it's, you don't realize it until you play with it. But it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, I mean, you got the spellcaster. Your numbers, like they said, aren't great. But who cares? You have the blinding light. You can get into combat. You got enough D6 to make it last. And enough hitting power, too, with, you know, those Faramir, Boromir, and Gwahir. That's, that's a lot of hitting power. And then cheekiness with, you know, the compel, and then go here, just goes, hump. I don't know if in this list, if, if this is a good list for Faramir to show his quality, or if he's just going to get picked on because he's a smaller threat than the other two. I'm not sure. But, yeah, it's it's a pretty crazy list. I, I do like it a lot. I guess, you know, just siege weapons are, are gross. <laughs> but even then, like, yeah, no, nah, it's... It's good. It's gonna be a legend. Oh my god, does that mean it's another three legends? Looks like uh, looks like we have a tie this week. Oh, what does that mean? Is three that... people with three legends. I can't believe everybody's rated so high this week. That's crazy. <laughs> we must all be like, all woke up on the right side of the bed, eh? I, I will <laughs> say um, the one weakness is that Galadriel being my leader, I just really don't want that contest of champions. So one in 18. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you've risk, practiced but... uh, using Guahir as the the leader before, like while you're practicing for Adepticon. No, but I've done a different list, very similar kind of list at 800 points, where Guahir was my leader, but then there were times where um, he was more at risk of getting wounded. So I was just trying to protect my VP points a bit more. Right, right. I mean, it's not the worst thing because you have so many other threats that could like go into the enemy leader in Contest of Champions, and then Galadriel just compels a guy and uses all of her might just trying to get kills. So like, th- there there are ways around it, but yeah, I think it's fine with that with having Galadriel as the leader. Probably, yeah, that's probably the right call. Even Contest of Champions, I'd I'd argue that if you use the, the strategy of using one of your other big threats, because you've got about three of them to knock off your opponent's leader early 
and then try and get Galadriel into positions where she can get a few kills, even if you beat your opponent's leader by one point. You could still manage to win. It's kind of like how, Ian, how you said Faramir might get picked on. With this list, I'm not sure that Richard's opponent would really have much time or thought to pick on Faramir, just because he'd be too busy dealing with all the other threats, like Galadriel, Boromir, Gwahir, Mounted Models, Numbers, Banner, Shooting, Fight Six Pike Block, Broadswords. Yeah, I think I think that's most of them. I think I got them. Yeah, the kind of the funny thing is, just looking at this, is even if you come up against a really big threat, you could just like, oh, okay, here, Angbor, try and kill this. Oh, okay, you're dead. Okay, Farmir, go. Oh, okay, you're, you're kind of wounded and you're out of my... Okay, Boromir, go. Like, you just keep on throwing <laughs> stuff at it. That's assuming it's not immobilized either. <laughs> it's just silly. <laughs> oh, and then you could put... Oh, you could back up Angbor with, like, pike support, so he's rolling a ton of dice and fights... Ugh, 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 yucky. So... That's my specialty. Yucky. <laughs> so I guess uh, I tied with Alex this week. Let's move on to our open topic for today, which is favorite and least favorite match play scenarios. Okay, so today we're going to discuss match play scenarios. In the recently released match play guide, there are 18 match play scenarios, 12 of the original, and 6 new ones. And we're just going to go through which ones that we like seeing turn up in a tournament, and which ones we hate seeing turn up in a tournament, and reasons why, and yeah, let's just go from there, and then uh, we can kind of respond to each other's choices. So I guess there's a couple favorite scenarios. Generally, I lean towards the ones that are a bit more strategic rather than just a full-on brawl, which can be fun as well, but I like the scenarios with secondary objectives. I also like scenarios that, when it comes to the end condition, is not random. So what I'm talking about is there's some scenarios that once one list breaks, um, you start rolling on a one or two, it, the game randomly ends. And there's others that usually when one army gets quartered, the game ends. And I prefer those because I feel like it also takes out some of the randomness and you can plan out things better. And it's just overall more strategic as well. So with that said, I would say domination and one of the new scenarios, Breakthrough, is a very similar kind of scenario. They both have four to five objective markers throughout the map, and it's about standing close to them at the end of the game, and that's how you count the VPs. So those are generally my favorites. So like you said, Domination and Breakthrough, a lot of similarities they both have a standard deployment and they don't have the one or two end conditions. Uh, for domination, there is a little bit of randomness when you place down the objectives. You, you don't really mind that. It's not really random, right? It's you alternate placing down the objective between your opponent. So you have control over that technically. Okay. But what I meant, I guess, by random was just um, they're not in the same spot every single game. Like, yeah, they well, could be a little varied. You do end up with, like, pretty standard, like, rough areas where you know the objectives are going to go, right? Just because they have to be 12 inches away from each other. So 
most of the time you're you're usually going to end up you can either end up with like the five sided die where it's two on your side one in the middle two on the opponent's side or you'll end up with one where there's more on towards the middle and then maybe one on each side or maybe only one on one two on one side and three in the middle but like there's only so many ways they can be deployed, and usually you can see how that's going to happen just by looking at the board. So I don't think it's that big of a deal, honestly. I guess so. I, guess so. I mean, there's also uh, small tricks that I guess if you're a more experienced player, you can kind of take advantage of. Like, let's say um, you're playing a list with Woodland Creature, then you can maybe put an objective in the trees or behind certain uh, terrain if you feel like that's to your advantage. So... I think a newer player might not think about those nuances as much. The other thing I thought of was um, some, I know some leagues prefer to play 6x4 boards, and when the board is bigger, then the objectives where they start might be a little more varied, because there's more choices of where you can place them. That is true, yeah. we I am thinking about uh, like a f- standard 4x4 plate, which is what we usually play on. The other thing, like Richard was mentioning with tricks, is that you can do is, if you have a really heavy combat-oriented army, most of the time, people are going to expect you to place an objective on your half of the board. But because you're placing them separately, you can basically end up placing them all in the middle and all of them on your opponent's half. And then you just bum rush that half. And that can be really beneficial. And I think you can probably catch a lot of people off guard with that if they're not expecting it or if they're newer. I actively do that if I'm playing Mordor. I use that strategy all the time in games like in a Domination. Because I'll, I'll always push one objective to my opponent's half and then rush his end. Because with Mordor... Forces like that that are very offensive, it's always worth it. Just being able to push forward, not having to worry about defend back, it's uh, probably a strong strategy in domination. Yeah, and so the scenario that I hate the most when it comes up in a tournament is probably storm the camp. And I think with all things considered, just reading the scenario, there's nothing that stands out as being game-breaking or anything bad like that. But in a tournament, I think the issue is the deployment, which you start at opposite sides of the board, and it just takes forever to get to any action. And in most tournament games, it it just doesn't come to the point realistically where you're competing to storm each other's camp. From my experience, a lot of the times, you guys start fighting in the middle, best case scenario, and then usually one army breaks, but by that time, the game's already close to over, and you could try to sneak like a guy, maybe, to get close to the enemy's camp, but if they're defending it well, then that's not going to happen. And another issue is that, like I said, a fight in the middle is the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is... There's one army that is heavily advantaged shooting-wise, and they're just castled in in their own objectives. So it doesn't. there's no real incentive for them to move, especially if they don't have a lot of movement. They just have a lot of bows. And if both lists are shooting heavy, then you're going to just get a really passive, you know, basically shoot off the entire game. So that's not very exciting, in my opinion. I've got to agree with pretty much all of that. That's one, probably probably also my least favorite scenario is Storm the Camp, just because I find, well, to be fair, the two armies that I bring to tournaments are Mordor and uh, Khazad-dûm. So whenever it's Khazad-dûm and that scenario comes up, I'm kind of in a hole because I have a five-inch move, so I'm almost automatically playing defense. I find even with Mordor, because of a lack of really strong cavalry options i'm usually outmatched and if i'm playing mordor i'm definitely outmatched in any kind of shooting battle so oftentimes i end up in one of those games that as richard just says he really doesn't like 
where I essentially sit just outside of my own camp and let my opponent come to me and essentially try and win off the other two objectives and just deny my opponent advancing into my camp. I think it's a very difficult scenario if you come up against an army that has strong mobility and you don't. I just find that scenario incredibly frustrating. So in like normal match play or like a casual game where you don't have a time limit, I think I actually kind of like this scenario because you have a lot of room to maneuver and a lot of time to do that maneuvering. But like you guys said, in a tournament setting, this basically usually goes along the lines of 45 minutes of running towards the middle, a big scrap in the middle, and if somebody sneaks a couple cavalry around, they'll probably capture the, the other person's camp and they'll win. And that's not super engaging and it's really stressful and Usually that doesn't happen, you know, like, and if you're playing against somebody experienced, they'll always leave a few people in their camp. So you just end up with a scrap in the middle, but you waste 45 minutes trying to get there. And, you know, in a two hour game time, that's, that's a lot of time. <laughs> and then the other thing is, like, you have a siege engine, you're giggling. If you don't have a siege engine, you go up against one, you're just like, you're face palming and going, oh, God, like, what am I going to do? Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about siege engines. I blocked that out of my mind. And it's only one that encourages not moving because. Part of your objective is to start at where you were, and I don't think there's another scenario kind of like that. All right, since we've already talked about Storm the Camp, I've managed to get that off my chest. Oh, that feels good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I got to vent about that. Richard already mentioned my, my tactical favorite domination, so I'll mention Capture and Control. Just because it is very much like Domination, it's a little bit more flexible and a little bit more offensive just because of the special rule in the scenario where the objective changes control based on essentially who's touched it last at the end of a turn. It also has a set placement for the objective markers. Unlike Domination, where you would control it and there is a, a tactical aspect to deploying the objectives yourselves prior to the beginning of the game, this game features three objectives directly along the center line, which promotes a lot of combat, a lot of early movement. However, they are well spaced out. They're not incredibly close together. So most of the time you will have to move quite strategically in order to gain more than one of the main three. Just because over the course of the game, you might fight over one, you have to move to another. You have to push your opponent back and make sure that they can't touch the objective at the end of a turn. So there's actually a lot of strategy I find in this scenario, despite the fact that three of the main objectives are all right up at the center line. So I really enjoy that scenario. I'd, I'd say it's definitely one of my favorites. If I had to name another one. I always enjoy Lords of Battle. Not a particularly uh, strategic match just because it's very simple. But I always love when it comes up, just because it's a lot of fun to play. It's kind of more of a loose game. Uh, my other least favorite, I actually, I've omitted one from the list because I'm sure we'll have a big, long conversation at the end. But Clash by Moonlight, partially because I've just had a lot of games in this scenario just go against me in tournaments, and I think it's left me really <laughs> jaded against the one scenario. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not all your fault. Just about it's half. It's a lot of my fault. <laughs> um, what can I say about throwing spears OP? Uh, just because, you know, playing anything that isn't a shooting list, this scenario often ends up feeling like Kite Central, when your opponent gets plus one to wound. 
if you either don't have the mobility or you're outshot, you're in deep trouble from the start of this game. And because as someone who often brings dwarves to a tournament, this is just painful. I have no other words. It's devastating. I, I kind of disagree with you on that one. I, I like Clash by Moonlight, but that's just because of like the aspect of hero killing. I really like that dynamic. Like People really gun for like the opponent's heroes a lot. So I don't know. I, I like that part of this, that scenario. I do like that aspect. However, again, as someone who plays an army that oftentimes, like, I, I don't have an army that has the necessary mobility to counteract being kited in that scenario. The shooting aspect, I, 100%, can be kind of gross. I often find that my opponent will wipe one or more of my heroes off the board before combat even starts. It's a demoralizing start to a game. Yeah, I know I know it's it, you struggle just based on the lists you play, but I do think that it is a very interesting scenario because it doesn't necessarily favor heavy shooting armies because it also limits the range and it also significantly weakens siege weapons. So I don't think necessarily it benefits shooting armies in every way. I think I actually think that's actually one of my favorites, Clash by Moonlight. Just a quick comment on your other picks, uh Lords of Battle. It's it's kind of in the middle of the road for me. I mean, I, I think that it, it doesn't favor evil armies because evil armies kind of struggle late game with their courage and with a one or two end condition. Yeah, it really depends if you are playing like a more elite army or if you play a horde army. You know, your opinion will differ a little bit on that one. Capturing control, I, I can see how you like this one because you like to play brawl combat armies and this one you can start at the center line. But again, the one or two end condition, I think I prefer Breakthrough or uh, Domination over that one. I'm just going to say that I also love Breakthrough. It's one that I didn't mention. I really enjoy it just because it, it does encourage you to kind of go out and try and both grab your opponent's objective while defending yours. So it's a little bit like Storm the Camp, except much closer together. So that awfully boring bit in the first half is mitigated. I really enjoy that. I feel like if if Storm the Camp was fun, it would be breakthrough. <laughs> Good way to put it. With my least favorite scenario, I'm going to jump on the Storm the Camp bandwagon. Uh, it's just a little bit boring. I don't think it fits the two-hour sort of tournament format. The other one that I would say that I really dislike is Contest of Champions, because I think it's a really, really coin toss situation where there, there's always this one scenario lingering in the back of their mind, which is Contest of Champions, where they need their heroes to actually kill. So I don't know if I like that aspect of it, kind of forcing players to just think of about that 1 out of 18 chance of being in a rules pack. I also don't like the deployment in that scenario where the, the leader has to start within three inches of the midpoint. It puts a lot of pressure on getting the heroic move roll off on turn one. And I think the advantage of winning that first roll off is just too big, especially if your opponent has access to hurl or magic, something that can knock out your, your leader or dismount him first turn. I just don't see it as being very tactical and too much of a coin toss. Besides Clash by Moonlight, I also really like the new scenario, Destroy the Supplies. And I just like your objective being on your opponent's side. So it encourages movement and also it encourages defending your own supplies from being destroyed. I 100% agree with the Contest of Champions. It just feels like a 50-50 of 
who's going to win the game on the first turn. And just not a lot of tactical thinking going on throughout that game, throughout that scenario. Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting that we're all say like, I agree with the contest. It doesn't actually usually come down to the matchup between the heroes. It usually comes down to that first roll-off that you have for the heroic moves. I think we can all agree on that, which is funny and a really weird way for a scenario to work. Like, it doesn't matter what you do in that game. It's just 50-50 first turn, and you could be totally screwed for the rest of it. I mean, not totally screwed. You can come back from it, but it's just, like, so much hinges on that. It's, it's an uphill grind if you lose that roll-off, which is, yeah, really, really annoying. Okay, so I'm going to start with my favorite one, because my least favorite I might rant about for a little bit. So my favorite is Fog of War. I know it's not like, ugh, well, I don't, I, I've heard it's not super popular in other circles, like in European tournaments, but I just, I love the idea of it just because of all the objectives in it. Like you have a certain degree of control of what you can do, but you're also trying to like figure out what the enemy is doing. So it adds an extra layer onto the game where you're trying to like outthink your opponent, trying to see what they're doing. And they're trying to do the same to you and you kind of have mind games going. So I love that aspect. And then just in general, they also, like, when you are fighting it, generally you still end up with a lot of movement because you do have that clash usually around the middle or towards one side, but then you're both trying to break through to get onto the other objectives to, like, the scenario pieces, or you're trying to, like, pull some of your own guys back to, like, block them to stop them from what they're doing, right? So I just, I love all the variability that can happen in this. The biggest thing that I hate about it is that it ends on a one or a two. Like, I don't like those scenarios, but I love this scenario so much, I can forgive it because I just love the mind games behind it and all that shenaniganry. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about that one? No, just that if I could, if, I, if the listeners could see me giving you a thumbs up on that one, that would be great, because I definitely agree with the mind games on that. All the different objectives involved, the fact that you have to defend a hero while targeting a hero, while trying to take an objective on your opponent's side of the board, while trying to figure out which one they want. It's a lot going on, and it's pretty crazy, and while you can definitely have strategy involved because of all the different mind games and uncertainty going on, it kind of throws it out the window and makes you kind of play the game on the fly, which I always find to be pretty enjoyable. A little bit stressful, but enjoyable. What I like about this scenario is that it's one of the only ones where you can throw your leader in recklessly because this is one of the only ones where he doesn't count. He doesn't have to survive. Or, But yeah, it's it would be one of my favorites if not for the one or two end condition. I just really dislike any scenario with one or two end conditions. Otherwise, it's an amazing scenario. Very tactical. Rant about the scenario. We all know what's coming. This is going to be like a 15-minute segment by itself. <laughs> I'm going to do this just one thing really quickly before we get into it. You stand on a one or two, which made it so much worse. Oh, they changed it. They changed it, yeah. So now it's 25%. Anyway, that helps a little bit. It's it's almost there for it's like where it can be a good scenario. And okay, it's heirlooms of ages past. It's just like, okay. Before you start, Ian, I need you to run to the washroom. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> no, go on. Do you want to go throw up like I do just by saying it, or, or what's the deal? <laughs> well, I figured it would take about like ten minutes or so. Okay, like, okay, so you deploy all of these six objectives randomly, which I kind of like the idea of, like, that can be fun, like, we've talked about domination, that you can do some stuff with that, right? But then you deploy randomly, so all the strategies you can have about deploying these objectives are, like, half of them just go out the window, because you don't know where you're starting, you don't know where you're going to end up, you don't know where your opponent's going to end up, you don't know what's going to happen. 
And then when you get on the board, there's like a 16% chance your opponent picks up where they have half their army, and they roll the die, they get the six, they pick up the objective, and then you have to spend the whole game running from every other corner edge of your board towards that corner to try and kill them. Like, that that's just, how is that fun? It's like storm the camp, but they have the one thing you have to, and they can move their camp when it happens like that. It's just like so annoying, and it's just like a scramble for everything. I just... Uh, uh, it's just so annoying and then like if you pick up the relic and you put it on your leader it's almost impossible for your opponent to win it's like they have to kill that model at that point to win or tie and that's just stupid that's just stupid you could pick up the objective put it on a high courage model run into a corner and you're guaranteed a tie i remember one time you said that you would hate the scenario less if the vps were distributed a little different or something Okay, yeah, so technically, if you read it, it says, if at the end of the game you're not in possession of the relic, but have more models within three of the relic than your opponent, you get three victory points. So my argument was that technically the way you read it, and I know the way it's always interpreted, is if you have the objective, you get six victory points. If you don't have the objective, but you have more guys, like nobody has the objective, nobody's like has it in their hand, but you have more guys within three, you get the three victory points. My change that I would like is if you have more models within three victory points, but the opposing player still has it on one of their models. So that way you can still score victory points for the heirloom without actually having it in your possession. So that just gets it out of the thing where it's like, oh, I have the relic. I put it on my leader. I auto win, right? It stops that. You you can have a bit of a tie. It makes it a bit more competition. I mean, I don't know how big of a difference that'll make because usually they just end up in a corner, but then at least you feel like you have a fighting chance. (sighs) Or maybe if there was only five victory points for having the objective, so you had to do something else, then I'd be fine with it. So it's okay, I have the relic, now I have to achieve one of these other things. Or, you know, not let my banner die. Just something else. It's just, you pick it up, you win. I don't know, I had one fun game of this, where my opponent and I both got rid of, like, three of the objectives, and he had some models around one of them, and I had some models around two of them, so I was waiting to see which one he would push towards, so he pushed towards one, and then I went and I tried to pick that one up to get rid of it. And then I had another one in the corner, so then it was down to two. I was like, ah, who's going to go for it first, right? That was the only time. And then we had a scrap in the middle, and I had a good fight, and it was really enjoyable. But every other time, somebody picks it up before you get to the last two or the last three objectives. And then it's just, oh, cool. I have to spend a whole bunch of time running towards this place. Great. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to agree with you for this one. Like, the big thing is probably the VPs, how basically you just do one thing. And it's basically up to chance. And if you do that one thing, then you win the game. But then the other stuff that leads up to that as well, it's just so random that I don't like. It's a maelstrom scenario. And then flipping the objectives is also pure random. And yeah, it's just, it seems like one of those scenarios that probably is not the best judgment of skill, which I tend to not want to see at a tournament because... It just throws you off and, you know, you want to be able to compete in a game and feel like you lost fair and square and up to strategy. But this is one of the scenarios that I feel like when you lose, it's kind of like sometimes you just have to blame the dice, I guess. It just comes down to to pure luck. I think we've all had our bad games with any Maelstrom scenario before. Last year in Toronto against Devin, I rolled three ones to deploy, and I pretty much knew that I lost by turn two. So, yeah, I I can understand that, but I don't know if it's my least favorite. I think the combination of a random deployment and random objective really sucks. 
Uh, I think it's the only one out of the 18 scenarios where both of those are random. So that kind of messes things up a lot because you're depending on luck. But I mean, if you were to come on the board in kind of surround one objective and then send parts of your army to try to dig up the other objectives, are the chances of your enemy picking it up first greater than, let's say, like the odds of winning a heroic move roll off in Contest of Champions or the odds of digging up a prize and seize the prize? I'm just comparing because I don't know if it's a scenario that relies on luck the most out of the 18. So I think... There, there was a breakdown on the One Ring a while ago. Somebody made a post. Actually, it might have been... I met them. I don't remember who it was. Was it Richard? It might have been Richard. Or maybe it was somebody from Nova. I, I, it doesn't really matter. But basically, like, the percent chance of it, like, at the start of the game, all the objectives, the percent chance that it is that objective is 16%, right? And then the percent chance that it is the last objective steadily goes up until it's 100%, right? So I think by the time you get to like the last two, it's like, yeah, it should be like 83% or something that it is the last objective. So you don't want to take that roll off. You want to just wait on it. But then, like you said, Charles, if you get into that position where you do manage to come in all around one objective, and then you send out scouts to go get the other ones and try and get rid of them. If you end up with a random model in the middle of nowhere who picks up the objective, he's in a lot of trouble. Or if your opponent does that and they have it in their corner, then, like I said, it's storm the camp, but they can move their camp. And it's one model as opposed to, like, an area. They, they did tweak it a lot when they made the, the new new edition, and it is a lot better than it used to be. Like, getting rid of the one or a two roll at the end was big. And then and I think they added in another objective, so now it's, like, banner, breaking, and leader. You can get the secondary points. I feel like they, there needs to be one more thing. I don't know what that extra thing is, but just one more thing, and I think it would be good. Maybe if they change that immobilizing thing, special rule, like when you're holding it, you roll a die. Maybe if they change it to a one or a two, so it happens a lot more. Or what about if you get one VP for flipping a token, even if it's a dud? Mm, how so that work? It's spread out more, and it encourages people to flip the tokens. Because sometimes, from my experience, usually people would hoard the ones on their side without flipping them and mm. try to wait for the all the other tokens have been flipped, and then they flip the ones on their side. So it kind of guarantees it. But then if you're getting VPs then everyone would be rushing towards kind of the tokens to try to flip them, even if they're not the real heirloom. Mm -hmm. I think the best change that I like that was on, I think the Green Dragon mentioned it, but there's um, there's a battle company scenario like this where you have six objectives. One of them is the real one, then the rest are decoys, but they all start on the center line and you have to like rush up and you have to try and like turn them all like this, but you don't know which one's which. I think that might work a little bit better because you know roughly where it is. You know it's on the center line. You know, it's not in this bent random corner. That would be like seize the prize then, right? But yeah. With multiple. But there's like, yeah, there's six objectives across the center line, but only one of them is the real one. Do you think the number of tokens is a problem? Do you think it would be better if there were only three or four? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, I think it is better with the more just right now. I haven't thought about it a lot just because of the random deployment. Mm-hmm. Because I you could so. just end up with the warbands off in the corner doing nothing for the whole game. So at least this way they can at least kind of do something. I don't know. Okay. That has been our discussion on our favorite and least favorite match play scenarios. Thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.